um, and just, just how God will use you in that way. Well, we are diving into the book of Esther. And uh, this is, we're going to talk about courage and providence. So, so living with courage, you've got a young lady here named Esther who's going to be called to live with courage and step out in courage. And in the back, the, the, kind of the backdrop of it all, you have God who is, who is working, and, and we call this kind of like providence, where he's working in the, the background, and he has it all laid out beforehand, and, and he just, he knows exactly how it's going to go, and, and that's, that's providence. And so you have this, this woman who lives with courage, and even other characters like Mordecai have to demonstrate some courage, but in the background, God is, is also involved with providence. And so you're going to see that theme just kind of over and over as we go through this book together. I'm going to start this morning with just a few facts on Esther, okay? Uh, Here's the first one. It was written in the 5th century BC. So somewhere around 464 to 415 is when it's estimated. Uh, This was about, well, 450 years before Christ was born and his earthly ministry. And just to kind of give you an idea of how much can happen in 450 years. Uh, the United States is a little less than 250 years old, so you got another 200 years on top of that. Uh, the Bible kind of goes silent in the last 400 years before Jesus, so this is one of the last books that was written before Jesus comes onto the scene. So it kind of gives you a little bit of the time frame and, and where it is in history. Something else uh, that's interesting in the book of Esther is that there's no mention of God in it. Not at all. It's the only book in the Bible that that's the case. There's no mention of God in the, in the book of Esther. So some have said, well, why is it even there? And if you look at it and you read it all the way through, you get to the last chapter and it says, this is how the, what we might call a holiday or the celebration of Purim began. And I think that's the main reason the book is there is to tell us why there's this, this celebration of Purim. But it's a great story, and again, you see God working all the way through it, and I think there's some incredible points that we can get from that. Okay, the other one is there's just a lot of moral ambiguity. And this is one that, as people have begun to read through it, they begin to ask these questions, and this is, a, by the way, a great reason why we need to figure out how to study God's Word better. Because you can look at a passage in the Bible at times and go, well, huh, there's some immorality there. So if it's in the Bible, it must be okay, right? No, that's not the way it works. This is a narrative, and sometimes there are stories in the Bible of people doing the wrong thing. That doesn't make it okay. And so that's important. And you see that in this book, that there's just a lot of this kind of moral ambiguity. You know, is it really wrong? Is it right? There's a lot of questions and that sort of thing. And so we'll go through some of those things. Um, But some of them just just to hit on real quick, you're going to read about today a lot of drinking uh, that's in the Bible, or in Esther, excuse me. Then you've got sexual immorality is brought up, murder, evil plots. Uh, they even break the Torah or the commandments because Esther was a Jew and she married a Greek king, which it says not to do. So there's some of those things that, that take place, and yet through it all, you see God's providence. God's providence can be identified all the way through the book. Sometimes God uses situations that are poor. I mean, in a moral situation, and God uses it to bring about glory. 
And that's sometimes hard for me to wrap my brain around, but it's God, and he can do that sort of thing. One of the greatest kings in the history of Israel was Solomon. Solomon was Bathsheba's son. Bathsheba and David committed adultery. And Solomon was the line, part of the line of Christ. It's like, kind of blows your mind, right? Like, why would God do that? But he did. And so those kind of things you see throughout Scripture, God uses people in, in unique ways, and, uh, and his providence can be easily identified, certainly in this book. So I want to give you a timeline as well, just so you can kind of picture where Esther is. Um, if you're thinking back, uh, like, okay, how, how did some of these things happen? How, where did Esther come from and that sort of thing? Let me just go back a little bit in Israel's history. Um, now, I'm a, I'm a young earth person. I believe that God created the world 6,000 years ago. Uh, there's some that differ in that. I'm just, I'm just going to kind of leave it out there. I think there's evidence to suggest that. But, but here you've got about 6,000 years ago, there was creation, and then time goes by. God deals with some different people throughout it, and I'm, I'm just taking a huge portion of Scripture and summarizing it, okay? So God's dealing with people throughout it, and then you get to this guy named Abraham who comes on the scene, and God says, Abraham, I'm going to take you and make you a huge nation. And Abraham's like, I don't even have a son yet. Oh, don't worry, when you're 100 years old, you have one, okay? So then he has a son, and that, that son then has more, and, and eventually you have the whole nation of Israel, and they're in Egypt through a series of events, and they become slaves, but they're a huge, huge group of people. And so after they've been enslaved in Egypt, God brings them out and brings them into the promised land. And while they're in the promised land, they've got people who rule over them, like judges and prophets and so forth, and then God gives them some kings. And then they have a north king and a south king, because like all families, they can't get along, right? You know, so you got this northern kingdom and this southern kingdom, and this split, and eventually, the, southern, the northern kingdom gets, gets taken. And some of those people get carried off into other countries and nations. And then the southern kingdom also gets taken. And those people get taken off into other countries. And one of those countries was Babylon. Well, as time goes by, these exiles, these people who have been taken out of Israel, some of them go back to Israel and they rebuild the uh, Jerusalem and the wall and the temple and those types of things. So you have Nehemiah, Esther, or Nehemiah Ezra and, and those stories that talk about that. But you have, at the same time, a remnant, a group of people that stay over in the area of Babylon. And now those are the people in Esther. Okay? So that happens, again, about 500, 450 years before Christ comes onto the scene. So it gives you kind of a picture of where we are at in the Bible and the timeline and everything, or at least I hope it does. Uh, again, if you have questions about any of those things, feel free to talk to me later. Uh, if I didn't confuse you now, I can just confuse you even more then. So, um, but that's, that's kind of where we're, we're at. Well, as we move into Esther chapter 1, uh, I've entitled this, this message today just simply this title, People Are scary. Now, we're going to take a look at the whole chapter, and we're going to be moving through this. It's a narrative, so, so we're going to be moving through it pretty quickly and just kind of pulling out little nuggets along the way and getting the main idea, the big idea as we do. But people are scary, and there's a reason for that, and I think it's because people are unpredictable, and that means their response, like how they talk to you or how they treat you, is uncertain, and uncertainty scares people, Right? 
for the most part. Now, there's not, you know, some people are go with it just fine, but then there's some that it really scares. And there's some people that have great anxiety when it comes to people. So there's, you know, on a spectrum, there's a wide range of how people respond to others. Some people would look at this and say, I don't think people are scary at all. Until you get to people with certain authority over you, and then you say, well, those people might be scary. And that's what we see in this story is a king who has great power and is extremely scary. So the big idea is that people are scary, but God gives courage. And God expects us to be courageous, and therefore he's given us everything we need to be courageous, right? Another Old Testament passage, Joshua 1, 6 through 7, it says, Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to your fathers to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you will have success wherever you go. Now you can read that and say, well, that's, that's a guy named Joshua, and God appointed him to take Israel into the promised land. Of course he's not to be you know, afraid. But you know what? You are a child of God if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And you actually have something that Joshua doesn't have, and that's Christ living in you and the Holy Spirit who comes alongside and helps and guides and leads us. God is calling us to be strong and courageous too. I think that needs to be clear in our lives. He wants us to be courageous. So if you're sitting back going, well, I'm just kind of a, I'm not really much of a people person. Or, that's okay. God still asks us to be courageous and, and to love and care for people, reach out to people. So we're going to take a look at that as we go through this whole book. And we're going to see today as we kind of set the stage that uh, Esther has to eventually confront, well, not confront, but, but come up and talk to a king that could kill her, execute her. It's going to take a great amount of courage. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for who you are, and that you are an awesome God, and you guide and direct us. Thank you for the story of Esther, that even though we don't see your name in it, we see your hand all the way through it. And Lord, sometimes that's the way it feels like in our lives. We call out to you. We may not even hear you echo back. We may not hear you call back. We may not hear you say anything to us. Yet, as we go forward and we look back in history, we see your hand through it all. You're an awesome God, and we don't always understand why you do what you do, but we choose to trust you knowing that you're good and you're righteous. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, let's take a look at the king's power. Okay, we're going to be setting the stage for the rest of Esther. And so chapter 1 basically is just telling us a little bit about who we're dealing with here. It's going to tell us about the king and his power, and it's going to tell us about the queen and how she was rebelled, and it's going to set the stage for Esther to come onto the scene. So we're just basically laying some, some framework for you today, and then hopefully you'll come back and, and we'll start to work through the rest of the book together. Verse 1, it says this, these events took place during the days of Ahasuerus. Now, you can say that a couple different ways, Ahasuerus, or I just like Ahasuerus because it just rolls off the back of my throat better. So, so that's what you're going to hear me say. But anyhow, uh, you might have a Bible that has the, the name Xerxes in, in it. 
Um, different translations do that. They put Xerxes in there because it's easier to say, probably. But, um, but Xerxes is the Greek name for him. Okay, and this is the Hebrew name. So, so these, these uh, events took place during Ahasuerus, who ruled 120 provinces from India to Kush. Now, if you look at his empire, it's, it's massive. It's huge. You can see over there kind of Egypt. Egypt itself is a large country, and then it just kind of expands. It goes up, up through Israel, and then uh, continues to, to move over towards India. So this uh, is the estimated Persian Empire and just its size and its mass. It was, it was large, 127 provinces. So it begins by telling us how, how powerful, how big his nation is. Okay, so that's kind of the first, first clue we see that he is a powerful king. Then verse 2, it says, In those days King Nehazaros reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, and the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the officials from the provinces. Now he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. Because that's a long party. 180 days, right? He displayed the glorious... Go back to verse 3. It talks about this. Verse 3, he held a feast. Okay, so it's a feast. It's a huge celebration for 180 days. And what do you do after you have a 180-day celebration? Okay, well, verse 5 tells you. It says, at the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet. Because that's what everybody does after they celebrate for 180 days, right? In the garden courtyard, so they kind of move, maybe in a different direction, in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all people from the greatest to the least who were present in the fortress of Susa. So it's, it's just mainly in that area, not throughout the whole empire, but in that area of Susa where the king was at. And then he goes on, talks about how, how incredible the area was. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. It's hard to probably visualize all of that, but you can kind of get the idea. There's some incredible things here. Uh, gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. And you're like, wow, I wonder what that would really look like. And it's cool. You can go back at least in and dig in that area, and you find some things like this, which give us a little bit of an idea of what it did look like. Now, this is some of the ruins, but this has been preserved here, where they have etched in a nice you know, piece of marble here, and, and they do a, a great job. This is after, what, 2,500 years? So, you know, it still looks pretty nice, but you can imagine what it must have looked like back then when they made it. Uh, my son right now, he likes to ask me questions. This is my eight-year-old son. He's like, hey, Dad, back in the day, he'll be asking that all the time, Dad, back in the day, was, and the first one he asked me was, hey, Dad, back in the day, did you have a horse and buggy? <laughs> like, Bowen, I'm not that old, okay? Just, back in the day, did you have black and white TV? I'm like, no, I'm not quite, not quite, buddy, but, so, but back in their day, they had incredible things, Incredible things to look at. And, and so that's one example. Here's another example. You can go back and look at it today and see uh, this and how it was etched in the stone and just how beautiful it was. Uh, here's an artist's rendition of what it possibly would have looked like. Um, and so you can see that's kind of a courtyard there and just the beauty of it and from the description here and the text and so forth. And so, you know, it would have been a beautiful place and would have definitely have shown his, his wealth and his power. 
And by the way, he'd only been doing this for three, four years. So this is uh, something that he inherited some of it, and then he expanded it as well. So you continue, verse 7. It says, drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty, and the drinking was according to a royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Now, again, this was just in Susa, not the whole kingdom. But could you imagine that? I kind of I'm going to say it anyhow, but I kind of thought maybe I shouldn't say this, but could you imagine if the White House was just like, hey, you can come here and just drink, you know, all day long, whatever you want, it's all yours. That'd be a crazy place, right? Yes, crazier than it is right now. All right, that's, that's the part I wasn't sure to bring up, but yeah, so it would be a crazy place, and that's, that's what they had. I mean, he just opened it up. Here you go. We can have the, the wine's king. There was no restrictions, just flowed freely. Well, Queen Vashti, now we bring in Queen Vashti, verse 9, also gave a feast for the women of Ahasuerus' palace. On the seventh day, the king, feeling good from the wine, apparently it took him seven days, I guess. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Seven days, he's feeling good from the wine, and Ahasuerus commanded Mehem, you want to say it that way, or Mehuman? I don't know. I don't know how you say all these names, but I'm going to try it. Bitztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass. Josh made fun of me and said I shouldn't say it that way, but I don't know how else to say it. So, the seven eunuchs who personally served him. Now, there's something to bring out here. Okay, seven eunuchs. Eunuchs aren't mentioned a lot in Scripture, but here in Esther, it's mentioned a lot. And I think maybe one of the reasons why, again, is to show the king has this tremendous amount of power to do one or two things. One, convince guys to come into his kingdom and become eunuchs, which is not a very pleasant experience, I'm sure. Or he has the power to force people to be eunuchs. And the reason they'd be eunuchs is because they were to serve the, the queens and his concubines and so forth, and he didn't want there to be any kind of adultery, you know, that sort of thing going on. So, so he has these eunuchs that were serving him. And it's mentioned several times throughout this book. Verse 11, so he tells the eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. Okay, so there's the first 11 verses of the chapter. It tells us what king had. He was a powerful king. Huge empire, wealth, could celebrate for 180 days, which by the way, when you can celebrate as a king, especially in that time for 180 days, that means you're so powerful, you're not too worried about other enemies coming to attack you. That's how powerful he was. He can celebrate for 180 days. He has this beautiful queen, and, and he says, this is, this is the king. This is the powerful guy on the earth at the time. So now enters Queen Esther. Okay, the queen's rebellion, starting with verse 12. How does she respond to this? Okay, uh, how does she respond to, hey, queen, come here. We want to parade you around and show your beauty. This is her response, verse 12. Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's, at the king's command that was delivered by the eunuchs. The king became furious, and his anger burned within him. How dare she, basically? And he becomes angry. And so the king consulted the wise men, 
who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with the experts in the law and justice. Now that showed uh, some wisdom on his part and maturity on his part. A lot of kings would be like, I'm not going to counsel anybody. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. But he shows, hey, he goes and he talks to the other councils. And, and so then he gets some, some advice back. The most trusted ones were Karshana and Shethar and Admatha and Tarshish and Marys and Mersana and Memekin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest position in the kingdom. So these are the, not only the wise guys, but they're the powerful guys. And they have access to the king. And so the king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs? They don't really answer in a legal way. They don't really say, this is what the law has to say. Instead, they just kind of talk and, and they come up with this as a suggestion. Verse 16, Memekin said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all women who cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti, brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. And so there's a concern, right? People will learn from the queen's example. And then it'll go around, because she was already having this banquet with the other ladies, so the officials' wives and maybe daughters and so forth. So she was already having this, you know, this, this banquet with them. And so they witnessed all this. And so there's a concern. The guys are starting to say, well, if she stands up against the king, then I might go home and my wife might stand up against me, and then there's going to be all kinds of problems. And, and so the guy, there's a bit of a power play going on here. So verse 19, if it meets the king's approval, this was the recommendation, he should personally issue a royal decree, let it be recorded in the law, so now we're making up a law, of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. Okay, because she's dishonored the king. Um, Now, it doesn't say that she dies here. It doesn't say that uh, she was going to be kicked out of the palace. She might have been removed to a separate place. Maybe they did. She was certainly going to be removed from queen in that position. Her royal position was taken from her and given to somebody else. Again, we're setting the stage for another queen to come into the picture, which is uh, Queen Esther later on. Verse 20, the, king, the decree the king issues will be heard throughout the vast kingdom, so all women will be honored, will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least with fear. And I'll just add that in there, right? <laughs> but that's kind of the idea. Like, they'll be afraid and, and they'll honor it that way. Verse 21, the king and his counselors approved the proposal and he followed Mimikin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in his own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Now, if you're starting to feel like, oh, there's a little bit of tension here, there's a power play going on, there's men and women, church talks about men and women and various roles and how the Bible sees it and all of that, one good news for you is that'll be a discussion this week in life group. So I'll let you uh, handle that there. Now, I will say this. 
Um, there are, throughout Scripture, there are, are roles for men and women that are, are acknowledged. One thing that needs to be clear for men is that God never calls men to rule over women with an iron fist. Okay? Not to have dominion over them. He's there to love and respect and honor. I mean, you can read Ephesians chapter 5. It's very clearly, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And did what? Gave himself up for the church. Right? And then it talks about women are to respect their husbands. And it tells men you are to lead. It's very clear in Scripture. Men, you are to lead. But you're to lead like Christ leads. And to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for him. So, so there's a little bit, and hopefully that'll fuel some of your discussions uh, in, in life group this week, and you'll deal with some of those passages and talk through them. And uh, life group leaders, I'm sure, are looking forward to that discussion. So uh, we'll let them handle it. Luke and I are going to be gone this week, so we don't have to deal with it. So that's pretty cool for us. But, um, but no, I think it'll be a good discussion and look forward to, to having you guys go through that. Um, but I want to get back to just this whole stage that's been set for us. And realize that as you look at, at this passage, you have a king who's very powerful and a queen who has just rebelled. And because he's powerful, he's a scary guy. And people in power can be scary, but for some of us, just people in general can be scary. But God gives courage for us to stand up. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through this book together. Now, I will ask this question, where do we find our greatest source of courage? To be able to stand up to, to maybe situations where, for whatever reason, maybe you're fearful. Uh, it could be that the reason you're, you're afraid of people is because they have authority over you. So it could be a boss or something like that. Or it could be you just got pulled over and that police officer's coming. A little scary situation. Or you passed one and all of a sudden your car slows down, you know, because you're fearful. Okay, so there's one. But then there's those, like, times where you're afraid to approach people because you might get embarrassed. Uh, you might not be able to have an answer that that person wants, and you know it, and so, so embarrassment can be a reason that people are afraid of other people. Um, past hurts and experiences, you know, you've, you've gone to somebody, you've opened up to somebody, and you got shot down, or you found out they went and gossiped about you, and so then you're just like, I just don't want to deal with people in general. Or someone attacks you. Uh, I will hear this, uh, and hopefully this doesn't happen in our church, but I will hear it um, from others, especially moms. And since we're a church that has a lot of young families, probably we need to hear this. But moms will hear this at time when their kids are acting up. Uh, another parent will come and say something about their kids and tell them how to parent their child right there and then. And that is, can be pretty demoralizing for a mom if it's not, you know, there's times where maybe it needs to be done with some grace and compassion or, or things like that, but it needs to be done with love. And so, you know, there's times like that where it happens. And if you've had an experience like that, there are people that will say, I won't even go to church because last time I went to church, somebody told me how bad of a person I am or how bad my kids were. I go to church to be encouraged and I get told how bad I am. So if that happens and you've had a bad experience and you say, well, I don't want to go where there's going to be people because I don't like people. They're mean, Right? So where do we find our greatest source of courage to, to fight through those? 
and say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and move forward and, and stand for what's right. And God calls us to worship together. God calls us to be together. God calls us to be a body where we've got a hands and a foot and an eyes and nose and mouth and all working together with our different skills and abilities and talents and all those so we can work together for his good and his glory. But sometimes it hurts. It's hard. Because people are hard to work with, right? And you've heard it said. People will say this at times. Like, the church would be great if you just got rid of all the people. And, and we laugh, but, you know, it's part of us are like, well, the reason we laugh is because it's true. So how do, we, how do we have courage in the midst of loving and caring for people? Well, I think the greatest source, um, we can read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know what is the hope of his calling. Jesus Christ has called us to eternal life, and that eternal life begins the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And because it begins that moment, nobody can take it away, and you have a relationship with God the Father, and that is the best relationship ever. Ever. With the most powerful authority on the face of the earth and in the universe. That is his calling. That's the hope that we have. So what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens. So we place our faith in Christ who not only died on the cross, but then rose from the dead, has power over death to bring us into new life. And we take off the old self, and we put on this new self, and we live in this, this glorious new life in Christ that says, I have courage and I have confidence because my identity is in Christ, it's not in myself. My identity is in the work of Christ and not in my own works. And we can be much more courageous in this life if we lean upon him and walk in his life, in his truth, rather than our own. And so that's a practice that we have to go through on a regular basis. It's one I have to go through on a regular basis. I have to remind myself I'm a child of God, that God is always there, that God has redeemed me, that God has given me eternal life, that no matter what anybody out there says about me, I know that my identity is in Christ. And that's where you get courage from, even when you have some difficult things that are said. So we're told in Ephesians 6, which is the end of that same book, finally be strong or be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil because the devil wants to knock us down. And one of the quickest ways to knock us down is to get somebody else to come and tell us how bad we are or to get the world to pick apart our image and tell us that we're dumb as Christians or that we failed as Christians. You'll hear that. Like how many times have you said something to somebody, you know, that may not be the right thing to do. And they'll be like, well, you as a Christian do this. Like, oh, yeah, I do. And they'll just kind of throw you back down, and that hurts. So we need to be strengthened to fight through those things. The devil wants to knock us down. This world will knock us down. He says, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. There is a spiritual battle taking place there's a spiritual battle taking place for you. Satan wants to knock you down. God wants to bring you up. And so you can, you can f- 
Be strengthened in him. Remind yourself of what Christ has done for you. But dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And here he says, I've given you this new life. Live in it. Here it is. Or you can choose to believe what the world has to say. You can believe what Satan has to say and get knocked down. And all of us want to believe what God has to say and live in that kind of power and strength. But it's difficult. And that's why we need each other to help and encourage and strengthen each other. And that's why we need God's Word to be in it, to read it, to study it. That's why we need prayer so we can take those things to Him. We can lament about those things. God, I don't like the situation I'm in, but I trust you through it anyhow. We have all those tools in our tool belt, and we need to tap into them so that we can have courage. Well, a challenge to respond. At the end of our services, uh, we give you guys a little bit of a time just to kind of reflect on some things and ask a few questions. Maybe you have a few of your own questions uh, you can sort through, but it's a time for you to take a couple minutes and pray and respond. We also have response cards if you want to say something back, like, hey, I had a question about this or something like that, or you can answer one of these questions, and we'll get it through the week, and we'll respond to it and, uh, and pray for you. If there's a prayer request on there, put that on there as well, and we'll pray for that. So the first question is this, when was the last time you forced yourself to step outside of your comfort zone and talk to someone about Jesus? How did it go? Um, I remember, so in high, it was in high school, we took a trip down to California, and we did a mission trip down there, and we had to go around and knock on doors, and I hated doing that. I did not like knocking on doors and being like, hey, we want to invite you to a VBS. It was just a couple high schoolers, and we're sitting there thinking, here, you want to come? You know, you have kids? And we're like scared to death. I remember even going to this one door. And this door, we knocked on it, and then we heard this like, like, like seriously, over. And then, and then the door opens. You know how they have the chain on there? The door goes, what do you want? I'm like, we just want to invite you to VBS. Have a nice day, you know? Like, it's scary, right? But what was cool in that, that time is we had a young girl come, and uh, we gave the gospel, and we shared the gospel and the Bible verses and so forth, and, and I was able to pray with her to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And I remember that moment and how incredible it was to be part of something that big. Like, God, you used me to do something like that? And there are other times throughout life that I've been able to pray with people and or they'll, they'll tell me finally, like, hey, you know all those things you've been talking about? And Jesus, I finally believe in that. And they're excited. And I'm like, wow, we get to rejoice together. It's awesome. Or today we get to watch baptisms where people have grown in their faith. They're like, yes, I've made a profession of faith in Christ. And they want to celebrate it with the church. That's awesome to do together. Those are great moments. But they happen because people step out in courage. They happen because we're courageous. Sometimes we have to step out and do things that are outside of our comfort zone. We have to knock on doors. We have to meet people we've never met. We have to go talk to strangers when we don't want to. And then God does something amazing in the midst of those things. So when's the last time you forced yourself to step out of, out of your comfort zone? And what did God do in the midst of that? I can forget about that, and then I'll just go back into my comfort zone. But more often than not, I see God working when, when I step out of it. And, uh, and so I just want to encourage you to do the same thing. If you haven't done that before, do it because it's worth it. And maybe, maybe it doesn't yield a result right away. I have a friend who does something I think is very courageous 
weekly or somewhat weekly. And, and there's times he's like, oh, Ryan, I'm just not getting very many results. And yet, here a while back, he got a result. And he was super excited about it. To be part of something that God is doing is awesome. But it takes courage. You've got to step out and do something that's, that's courageous. So I do want to encourage you to think about those things. How did it go? Uh, and then this question... It's more of a response question. You can give it to me either now or text it to me or email me or something. What would you like to know about providence? Because I threw that word out there at the beginning, and you may say, I have no idea what that word even means. And if that's a question, like, first of all, I'd like you to tell me what providence is, then you can write that down. What is providence? So that might be one. But the other might be, what do you want to know about just God's providence in general? Some questions you might have. Write it down. I'll try to answer it in this series. Okay. Uh, and if I don't answer it in the series, then I will try to answer it um, just one-on-one or something like that. But, but uh, if there's something about providence you want God or help me or have me help walk you through, then let me know that. So those are the two questions. Give you a couple minutes, and then we'll come back and, uh, and sing and worship together.